Take your Bibles, turn to Luke. Luke chapter 18. I used to wonder why my mom, who worked as a receptionist for Tennessee Farm Bureau for several years, would pick up the phone at the house sometimes and say, Farm Bureau, this is Patricia. There are just habits that get ingrained in us, correct? This morning we're going to talk about identity theft and how that sometimes our identities are stolen by our pursuit for success. Now, I, this morning I thought we would start by doing an analyzation of me a little bit. And I thought, what would happen and what would you think about me if you walked into my office? Well, first of all, you would think our pastor needs to get a little more organized. I am uh, a person that, that has a filing system that I know completely that no one else understands. And so I have stacks on my desk and behind me, but there are also some items in my office that would give you a clue as to who I am. If you walked in, it's not hung yet, but there will be soon a picture hung with Smokey on it. Now, I'm a Tennessee fan, and there are some things about this photo that I really like. Mainly, Smokey's on the bottom, and everybody else is up in a tree from the SEC. Now, right out here in the corner is Smokey's paw print. I can't verify this, but Smokey's paw print came a week before he died. That particular Smokey, I don't know if it was six, seven, eight, whichever one. But I like to think it's his last paw print on earth, and it's left on my picture. So one of the things you'd find out about me is that I like Tennessee football or sports. You would also see that one time in my life I had a little bit of an artistic side, and I actually took a class on photography. And this is one of my photographs. Now, I took about 400 photographs. This is the only one I like. And so it's the one that's in my office. Uh, I got an A on the project, and all God's people said, Amen. That's right. Uh, I, I have to try them at any time to get you to say Amen. And so, and so it's a picture. It, it's not symbolic in any way. I took a picture of a railroad. Uh, and that's what it is. Now, when I showed it to my professor, she thought it was the most symbolic, wonderful piece of art she had seen that year. So I let her think that. Uh, and just, to me, a picture of a railroad. So you would see that. You would also see that I have a little bit of a, I'm a little bit of a trivia buff. And so I have a calendar that is from Cranium. Now, Cranium's a game that I like to play. And then on it's just each day has different things. Uh, each Wednesday, the staff can't wait to get into my office for staff meeting because we have trivia contest in staff meeting. But you'd see a little quirky side of me there. I also have a trophy, not from my early days in sports, although I have those at my parents' house. They keep threatening to bring them here. But this is something I'm very proud of. It is my fantasy football championship trophy from 2006. I don't actually play real football, just fantasy football. And you would see somewhere on my desk... A phone. It's actually called a BlackBerry because it does more than just a phone. It's a phone, email, text messaging machine. And I am really lost if I don't have this. I have a hard time remembering the days before cell phones. I remember my first cell phone. I got it when I went to Union, went to college. That's been about 14 years ago. And I had 30 minutes a month. And it cost us $30. It was a good deal at that time. You got a minute per dollar. I had $30 per 
uh, 30 minutes per month, and my mom's instructions were, do not even turn it on unless you really need to use it. We were scared, because in that day, if you went over a minute, it cost you like $620. So, but this phone is invaluable to me, and it, you know, because people can... Uh, can get information to me. I can get information from them. He can get on the internet if I need to do that for any particular reason. Uh, all of that is right here at my side. Now you would also see some things that tell you about things that I've accomplished. You see a, a diploma from Union University uh, that's, that you know has a couple of seals on it and uh, laudy something on there and just tells you that I actually went to school and I graduated. It's important. This is official. I didn't make this up, just so your confidence, I got that. There's also a certificate of license, which means I'm okay to do what I do. Uh, that means if I marry you, it's okay. Now, hopefully, I mean, if I do the ceremony, if I marry you, that would not be okay. Susan would have a little problem with that. But if I do the ceremony, it's okay. That means you're official. I can sign the papers. And then there's an ordination certificate, which really means that uh, my home church said that God had called me and saw evidence of that. For uh, practical purposes, it means that I have certain tax things that I have to do. But in a more spiritual way, it means that I believe that God has called me to what I do. So you see those all from my early days, and then you see my seminary degree that's there. And so that's not my guitar. I wouldn't know what to do with that. But you walk in and you get a picture of some things. You would also see pictures in my office. There are pictures of my boys. There's pictures of Susan and I. There's a picture uh, of me graduating, shaking Dr. Dockery's hand. And there's a lot of things in my office. There are a few books in there because I read a lot. But the truth is that sometimes when I look at those things, I feel a little bit like Paul. Because I can look at all of that stuff and if I wanted to, I could say, you know what? When I got that degree from Union, I got that degree and it had those seals on there and that must mean that I'm pretty important. And my home church had a special ceremony where they licensed me and they had another special ceremony that they ordained me. And one of my favorite moments in my life was at my ordination ceremony. The first person to lay hands on me was my father-in-law. And he is that has preached here from this pulpit and you will get the opportunity to hear him again in a few weeks as he comes while I'm at school. It was a significant moment for me. And I could think back on all those accomplishments in my life, and I could very easily say, because of what I've accomplished, I am something. When I was growing up, I have mentioned to you before that I liked country music uh, during my high school years. Uh, I listened to it quite a bit. Uh, growing up in northwest Tennessee, you just kind of you had to listen to it at some point in your life. And in that time... One of the songs that I remember was a song that was just simply, I'm going to be somebody. And we live in a culture that makes us think that in order to be somebody, we've got to do something. And Scripture would teach us different than that. And one of the tragedies in our society is that we are starting to enforce this idea that who you are is based on what you do at earlier and earlier ages. We're expecting more and more of our children, more and more of people at earlier ages. I saw an article uh, this week in studying for this sermon that was in Newsweek called The New First Grade. And it said that first grade no longer looks like something you might see in Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. It looks like an SAT prep course. 
and it interviewed children that said they were burned out by the third grade. I think about our sports society. I grew up playing baseball. I love baseball. I look forward to the day that my sons are throwing the ball with me. And the reality is I, I would love to have them play baseball someday, but part of my fear is the culture that has developed in youth sports. When you go to the baseball field and you're embarrassed by the words being said in the stand by the parents around you. When a child doesn't accomplish everything they're supposed to accomplish and suddenly the parent is mad at the child for what they didn't do. We reinforce it in small ways. I remember when I was a child, when I was playing kitty league baseball, I hit a home run. I, I grew really early in my life. By the time I was seventh grade, I was as tall as I am now. And so I was bigger than everybody else. And, and, and when I was ten years old, I hit my first home run and we lost the game. We lost by three runs. And we were playing for the championship that year and it was an important game and we lost it. But what I remember is I walked down the fence line and there were people there to shake my hand for hitting a home run even though we had lost the game. What I really remember is my granddad gave me a $20 bill. I probably could have never played college sports because of improper benefits at an early age. But it taught me a lesson. If I hit a home run, he thinks more of me. Now, that's not what he intended. But we teach that. It led to a culture where one singer, a, a lady named Alanis Moore said, who is not Christian at all, wrote a song that talked about that our parents will love us and it's from a parent's perspective. And the last line is, I will love you as long as you are perfect. Now, last week we talked about being perfect image-wise, and that is a tragedy in our culture, but the truth is, I think that sometimes the tragedy that is more in our culture is not that we're trying to look a certain way, it's trying that we're trying to act or be something. Luke chapter 18 is one of those passages of Scripture that teaches us about somebody that wanted to be something, but he didn't get it in the end. The truth is that trying to be somebody is something that's not just found outside the walls of the church. That within the church, people even strive for places of leadership and places to be important. And to think that if they get to a certain level, then, then what you'll have is that, that you are approved by God and by man because of what you've done. I see it all the time when I go to pastor's conferences. You walk into a pastor's conference, you walk into the Southern Baptist Convention, you walk into the Tennessee Baptist Convention, you start walking around, you see somebody you haven't seen in nine months, you shake their hand, you say, hello, hello, how you doing? Good, good, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Next question out of most of their mouths is, so what's you running now? How big are you? What's going on at your church? And whatever your answer is to them at that moment, changes how they think about you, and it changes how they think about themselves. In Luke chapter 18, we have a guy that is caught in this idea that success is what gives him an identity. And he caught in this pro progression that happens sometimes in the lives of each person that we, if we're honest with ourselves, that says that sometimes we feel like a nobody. And I'm going to be somebody, and I'm going to prove that to everyone. I don't care if it takes long hours or if it takes seven days a week. 
It doesn't matter if it costs me my health, my marriage, my relationship with my kids, or even my soul. I will pay whatever price is necessary because I can't stand feeling like a loser. I will compete, claw, perform, produce, earn, accumulate, strive, drive, and win until I'm appreciated, until I'm accepted, until I'm admired, until I'm finally somebody. Luke chapter 18. Verse 18 says, A certain ruler asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus answers him, What do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Honor your father and your mother. All these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to them, You still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was a man of great wealth. It's a story that many of you are probably familiar with, and what we're going to do today is see how success can strangle us, can steal our identity from us, because what he thought is, he thought he had succeeded in every way, including his spiritual life, and what God shows him through Jesus, and what Jesus tells him is, he has succeeded in much, but he has failed in the most important area. I ran across this quote this week that's on the top of your handout, and it'll be up on the screen, that just says that failure is to succeed at something that doesn't really matter. Failure is to succeed at something that doesn't really matter. And what this rich young ruler, as if you put together the accounts that come in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, what you find out is this was a rich young ruler, that's what we call him from Scripture, that he was a guy who succeeded in things that don't really matter. Three points that I want us to see today as we talk about how that sometimes our success can steal our identity. And first of all is this, is that worldly success will never be enough. Worldly success will never be enough. Now it's interesting how Luke introduced him because he just says a certain ruler asked him. If you look in uh, the end of the passage, you understand he had a lot of money because he said he was a man of great wealth. The thing is that each of the three... Writers describe the man a little differently. Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And from it, you get this picture of a rich, young ruler. Now, one of the things that we see from this passage of Scripture is that this guy had everything you could think you could want to be successful. That if you looked at our world today, you looked at the world back then, you looked at any world in any period of time, this guy had the three keys to success in life. And the first thing is, this man had money. All three accounts mention his wealth. Now, I don't know how wealthy he was. I don't know how much he was worth. It doesn't tell us in Scripture compared to everybody else what he was like. But what I do know is that he was wealthy. And in our society, there are some things that talk about success, but nothing says success to us in America today like money. I mean, after all, what is the American dream? It's to be somebody that has nothing from nowhere and end up somebody that's got a lot, right? I mean, the American dream in its essence is about getting more money. In fact, if you were to look at the polls around, most of us in America realize that we're too materialistic. 
89% of Americans think that we as a country are too materialistic. You know what's interesting? That is the exact same amount of people polled that thought they needed just a little bit more money so they make it successful in their life. Exactly, 89%. We're a country that has never had more than we've got now. And we've been a country that's never wanted more than we want now. It's amazing how because of our our ability to make money and to have money, that we suddenly think we have need for more. I saw a study this week that asked the question, what do you consider necessity? And it listed a bunch of things. And it compared the responses from 1970 to the year 2000. For instance, in 1970, 20% of people said that two cars and a family was a necessity. Today, 59% say that. In 1970, they asked if two TVs was a necessity for life, and 3% said yes. Today, 45%. In 1970, 2% thought that two phones were a necessity in life. 2000, it was 78%. In 1970, only 11% of people thought that air conditioning in a car was a necessity. They obviously never lived in Texas in July. Today, 65% think that way. In 1970, only 8% of people thought a dishwasher was a necessity. In 2000, it was 44%. And what's interesting is not whether we can have those things or they're interesting things or they're good to have, is that people now think they're a necessity. And when you get more money, all you want is more money. I think it was Rockefeller, who was one of the richest men in America, and somebody asked, when will enough be enough? And he said, I don't know, but I need just a little bit more. This guy had money. He had gained success but he was still looking for something else. Here's the second thing the man had. The man not only had money, but he had time. Now it doesn't say it in the book of Luke, but in the other ones you get the picture that this man wasn't only rich, he was young. Now how young? I don't know. But in comparison to everybody else, he was young. For a guy to have this much money, he gained it at an early age. He was a guy that had all of his life in front of him. He was a guy that had everything available to him. He was a guy that had years to build on his success. This wasn't a guy that at the end of his life with a year left suddenly found a pot of money. It was a guy that from the very beginning had the things afforded to him that would allow him to be more successful. I recently saw an interview on 60 Minutes with a guy that has uh, developed one of the uh, internet sites that is um, all across the country. A guy that developed a site called Facebook. And he is worth his company now in the billions. And he's in his early 20s. The internet generation has spawned guys that are worth billions of money before their 30th birthday. We've got the most successful athlete in the history of the world who is about a month older than me than Tiger Woods. He's the first billion dollar athlete. This was a guy like that. He had all the time in the world because he was young. He had all that money and he made it young. So he was a guy that had time. And lastly, he was a guy that had power. He was a guy that had power. It says in Scripture he was a certain ruler, the rich young ruler. 
The idea is that we don't know what kind of power he had exactly or how much he had, but the truth is not only did he have money, not only was he young, but he was a guy that had the ability to make things happen. He was a guy that had power and authority. He had control over something. If you were to ask our world, what are the three ingredients to telling someone that they truly are successful, having money, being young, and being powerful would be at the top of that list, and this guy has it. But here's the point. In the midst of that, we see that it's still wasn't enough. Good teacher, verse 18 says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He had all that you could imagine. He had everything that he wanted. But in the midst of that, he still needed something else. And his success just led to more wanting for success. That led to more wanting for success. Someone has said that what his success was like was the unscratchable itch. Anybody here ever had an itch? You haven't. God bless you. You ever had an itch and you tried to solve it by scratching it? Right? And it feels alright for a moment, but when you get done, what happens? It comes back, right? You ever had a child that's got an itch and you say, don't scratch it, don't scratch it, and you know they're going to scratch it because that's what you would do. But it never solves it. And the attempt to gain worldly success is like that. You can spend all your time and all your money and all your power and all your resources and lose your family and lose your house and lose everything you've got seeking after worldly success, but it will never be enough. And that's what the rich young ruler found out. I tried to think in today's world, who would be someone comparable to the rich young ruler? And what I came up with was a guy named Tom Brady. There's a quote on your handout. There'll be a quote part of it up on the screen. From Tom Brady, who was interviewed by 60 Minutes. Tom Brady is young. He's rich. And he has power in the great American sport of football. After he won three Super Bowls, 60 Minutes interviewed him, and this is what he said. Why do I have these three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? On your handout, it goes on to say, I mean, a lot of people would say, hey man, this is what it's all about. I reached my goal, my dream, my life. Me, I think it's got to be more than this. I mean, this isn't it. This can't be all it's cracked up to be. What's the answer? I wish I knew. Here's a guy that's got it all, according to the world. Everything you could want. If you were to talk to most young boys as they're growing up, would you like to be somebody like Tom Brady? Everything on that list, check off, yes, yes, yes. He's the kind of guy I would like to be like. And he gets to the very top of his profession. Some say by the time he's done, he may be the greatest ever. And he says, there's still something that's missing. Something. Is missing. Look on your handout at Haggai 1, chapter verses 5 through 6. The Lord of heaven's army says, Look at what's happening to you. You have planted much, but you harvest little. You eat, but are not satisfied. You drink, but are still thirsty. You put on clothes, but you cannot keep warm. Your wages disappear as though you were putting with them in pockets filled with holes. Now, some of you say, I can definitely relate to that last part. 
I get the money, but it just seems that it goes through my pockets filled with holes. But the truth is that what God is saying here is you will never gain success by trying harder or doing more. You can never eat enough. You can never drink enough. You can never have enough clothes. You can't let your wages be enough because there's always something that has to fill you more. First thing we see in this passage is that worldly success will never be enough. It will rob who you are. Here's the second thing we see is that your life only has room for one master. So he comes, and we can commend him because he comes to the right place with the right question. He comes and he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He's asking Jesus. Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good. And then he begins to list part of the Ten Commandments. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Honor your father and your mother. Now what's interesting is, he leaves out a few. Right? And I don't think Jesus forgot. That's just me. But if you think about the ones he forgot to mention, or left out on purpose, as I like to think, they're interesting. He left out the last commandment, thou shalt not covet. He left out the first two, you shall have no other gods before me. You must worship the Lord alone. You must not take the name of the Lord in vain. He left out some very important ones, and he left out the ones that this guy would have the most problem with. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Honor your mother and father. All these things I have kept since I was a boy. You can imagine in his mind this guy thinking, boy, he asked me the right one. He asked me the ones I wanted them to ask me. You ever get on a test in your childhood and they ask you all the questions you wanted them to ask? Remember the ones you didn't know? He asked all the right questions. And then it says in verse 21, I kept all these things. Verse 22, when Jesus heard this, He said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor and you have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. Here's the thing that I want you to see in this passage. The issue is not his wealth, it's not his youth, it's not his power. Those things in and of themselves are not the problem. He's not asking him to give up the money because the money is a problem in itself. The reason that he's asking him to do that is because that was the one thing that stood between him and God because he was serving two masters or attempting to. He's not asking him to give up all that because he wants everybody in this place to give up all the money that you have. He's not asking him to give it up because money in itself is evil. Somebody has said, and I believe this, money in itself is amoral. It doesn't have any morals. It's a piece of paper. Today, it's not even a piece of paper. It's an electronic transaction. Right? I don't see most of my money. And so how can an electronic transaction have morals? It doesn't. It's not that money is wrong. What is wrong is when you put that or your achievement or your attempt to do something or your performance mentality ahead of following Jesus Christ. And what happens is he comes to him and he says, listen, you can't serve money and me. And so your choice is get rid of the money or get rid of me. In the Ten Commandments I mentioned, God says, and I like the way the message puts this, paraphrases this, it on your handout it just says, God said, no other God, only me. That's it. 
And the problem with our culture and its attempts at success is that we try to gain more and more success, and as a result, it consumes our lives. You see, in our culture, what is built around is that there is this image out there that we're trying to portray. And so we do everything we can to get to that image of success, to get to that picture of success. And as a result, it turns into idolatry. You say, how does that happen? I was watching uh, or, or reading about a show that's been on for a while, but I haven't watched it in several seasons. But I watched the first couple of years of it, and it was Donald Trump Apprentice. Right? How many of you have seen that at some time? It's not confession time, just that one one. All right. How much explanation? After? Donald Trump's apprentice, many of you that may not have seen it may know the concept. He listens to 15 people, 16 people. He interviews them over a 15-week process, and he picks the guy that's going to work for him. What's interesting about that is how these people come, and their whole goal is to be him. And so they do whatever they can. One particular show, one of the guys gets kicked off the show. And as he's getting kicked off the show, he starts to just kind of grovel, if you will. He knows he's about to get fired. You know, Donald Trump looks, he's got two or three left. He looks at one of them and says, you're fired. And they have to leave and they go down and all that. And he's at that point where he can see the writing on the wall. He sees what's happening. And Donald Trump says to him, you know, you've got to explain yourself. He said, Mr. Trump, I just want you to know that my biggest dream in life, my biggest goal in life is to be right here right now in front of you and to work for you and to do everything I can for you. And I will be the hardest worker you've ever seen in your company. I will do exactly what you want to do. I will do whatever you ask me to do. Please, Dr. Trump, Donald Trump, please, Mr. Trump, do not fire me. And I thought, that guy's doing nothing but worship. He's groveling at the feet of a man. And since our world is inundated with reality television shows that try to take people to places that they've never been before, it's interesting to see when they get kicked off and their dreams are crushed that their identities sometimes are crushed with it because they have served that so long that when it is taken away, they don't know who they are anymore. American Idol has started kicking people off. And at the end of it, these people just cry and wail. And you hear people, what's interesting to me is you have 16, 17-year-old people going, I have trained my whole life for this. Right? Since I was a kid, you are. I know, I'm getting older, I can say that, right? Since I was a kid, I have dreamed of this moment. The show's been on six years, seven years. And it's their whole life ambition. But here's the truth. Their parents have encouraged them that they're as good as their performance. They get to that point and America doesn't like them and they don't know who they are anymore. And what God does through Jesus is He offers this this young woman. You can follow me, but you've got to give up there. And He thinks, if I give that up, I don't know who I am anymore. Now think about this. He's still going to have His youth, right? For all we know, He would still have His power it was just that one thing. Now some of you in this room have been blessed by God and you've got money. And I don't know whether or not you use it for the glory of God or whether it is something that is a hindrance to you. Some of you in this room have, don't have money. You never have had money. And so for you, it may not seem like it would be a hindrance, but the truth is, it's not about how much you have, it's about how much you want. And for most of us in this room, or let me say all of us in this room, if we're honest with God, there is one thing in our lives that God has to ask us to lay down or we can't follow Him completely. And for most of us, it's about something we want or want to obtain. God asks us to lay it down. 
since I've been a dad, the story of Abraham and Isaac in the Old Testament has been a fascinating story to me. And you think about that story, and I think about the promise God gave Abraham, the promise he delivered in Isaac at his old age, and then God asked him to go sacrifice his son. And God wasn't really wanting him to kill the son. I don't believe that was God's plan. God was testing him to see if the thing that he valued most in his life would come between him and his relationship with God. Now, I don't think and I hope and pray that God never asked me to do something that drastic. But I know on a daily basis, God asked me, am I going to follow him or is there something else I'm going to follow Am I going to listen for His voice and follow what He wants? Or am I going to listen to the voice of this world? Am I going to listen to the voice of those other pastors asking me how successful I am? Am I going to listen to the voice of even you as a congregation when you're trying to determine some things? And not that we don't work together to figure out what God wants to do, but God's asking me, what's most important in your life? Who is your master? What are you serving? Is it me or is it something else? And the problem is, whenever I go somewhere else, that is going to fail me. And as a result, my identity, if it's tied up in that, is going to fall on a regular basis. Here's the reason. It's because our attempts at gaining success will never succeed. Our attempts at gaining success will never succeed. So what does that mean? It means that after we understand that worldly success will never satisfy and our life only has room for one master, the third thing we see is that to regain our identity, we must understand God's economy. This is what I mean by that. Whenever I talk about economy, the first thing you think about is money. Whenever I talk about economy or a system of economy, the first thing you think about is how we can make more of it or what's happening in our nation with it. You think about gas prices, you think about the Fed tax cut, you think about your own paycheck, you think about all those kind of things. In God's mind, when He thinks of what is most important in life, His economy revolves around people, not things. And for God, the most important thing about us is not what we have or what we do or what we try to obtain. The most important things about us here today and forever is who we are in Him. We need to understand God's economy. I mentioned that oftentimes we, in the world's eyes, we pick an image and then we try to follow that. And as a result, we go into idolatry trying to follow that. And that's where we develop our identity from. But the truth is, in God's economy, in God's understanding, what we need to know first is our identity in Him. And that identity in Him leads us to a place where we want to be in intimacy with Him. And as a result of that, we come out with the concept of who we are or our image. On the bottom of your handout, there are two arrows, and you just can fill in, and those arrows that identity, intimacy, and image. Because what God intends for us to do is come to the place where we realize that everything begins in who He thinks we are. Everything begins in what He says about us, thinks about us, knows about us. Everything. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about the verse in Ephesians that says, that my prayer is that you'll know how wide and how long and how deep is the Father's love for you. The idea is that when we understand how much God loves us, then it's much easier to live our lives. And one of the things I love about God is that His love is constant. It is always the same. In fact, Brennan Manning in in a book called Abba's Child says that God's love is wonderful monotony. 
Now, most of us, when we think of monotony, we think of monotonous, which means the same. If I were to stand up here today and speak with the same voice at all times, at all levels, all the way across, before long you would all be drifting asleep. And so you like to hear things go up and down, up and down. If it's the same song over and over again, it can be monotonous. Anybody ever got a song stuck in your head? And it drives you crazy before long? It just is the same. But monotonous doesn't mean boring. Monotonous means just constantly the same. And the thing I love about God is His love is constantly the same. Here's the thing. When I hit that home run when I was 10 years old, God didn't think better of me. When I got that degree from Union University and it said summa cum laude on it, God didn't think better of me. When I stood at Southwestern Seminary and I brought, brought that up, He didn't love me anymore because I got a seminary degree. When I accepted a call to come to this church, God didn't love me anymore because of the accomplishment in my life. On the flip side of that is, when I mess up, and I mess up a lot, God doesn't love me any less when I mess up. When I talk to church members and I say the wrong thing at the wrong time and I mess up a relationship, God doesn't love me any less. When my wife and I get in a disagreement and I say something I should never say or I bring up something I should never bring up or I try to hurt her in some way, God doesn't love me any less. If I were to go out here this day as your pastor and as a leader of this community and I went out of here and I did something that would jeopardize my ministry, would God approve of it? No. But would He love me any less? No. God's love is monotonous. And it is because of that that I don't have to try to chase down accomplishing things in my life. I'll be honest with you, if God calls me someday to leave this church and to go to a church running 50, if that's what God calls me to do, I'm okay with that. I'm not trying to climb some ladder. And what I'm trying to do is to follow God's will because He loves me so much, I owe Him everything I am. And that means that wherever God calls me, however much He calls me to make, whatever kind of house that means, whatever kind of cars that means, whatever it means for me, that's what I need to do. Not because God will think more of me, but because I think so much of Him and the way He already used me that I want to do everything I can to serve Him as my only master. You see, it's not that God is up there keeping scorecards. I used to talk about that, that the, the offering envelope system in Sunday schools that, that I grew up thinking that God looked to see what boxes I checked every week and that determined how much He liked me. Did I read the Bible? Did I talk to people? Did I give? You know the boxes, right? Most of you. You get them in your mailbox from us. I don't know if they're still on there. But you, all that stuff. And God's not up in heaven with a checklist going, well, this week I'll run 75% because we only read the Bible 75% of the day. His love is constant. And that's where we get our identity. You see, the truth is that when those children are out on that ball field and they're playing, whether they hit a home run or they strike out every time, God loves them the same. And if Eli and Luke are to go to school and they make straight D's, God's going to love them the same. Now we'll have some talk. Amen? But God's going to love them the same. 
And one of the things that we need to do as parents, or one of the things that we need to do with our friends, is that we need to learn to let children know that God loves them the same. And so do we. Get your identity. That leads to a desire. When I realize how much God loves me, no matter who I am, when it is an unconditional love, I want to know Him more and more. Like Paul, I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection. One thing I do is I put everything aside. We're going to talk about the past next week. But I put everything aside. Past, present, future, goals, all those. And I seek after God with all I am. And as a result of that, I know who I am in Him. And I don't care what other people think. In one version of the story, it's an interesting thing. Because when it says that the young man went away sad because he was a man of great wealth, there's a part in there where Jesus looks at him with love. Jesus knows he's going to walk away. Jesus knows he's going to be sad. Jesus knows what he's going to give up. But he still loves him. I feel like the end of each sermon over the last three weeks has been the same and it'll be the same next week. Here's the truth. God loves you no matter what. And you can't find identity in relationships because the only relationship that matters is your relationship with God. And you can't find your identity in what you look like and trying to look in a certain way because God is the one that created you and your relationship with Him should determine how you feel. And you can't find your identity in what you accomplish because God already loves you no matter what happens. And the truth is that God cares about you intimately. And some of you here today have been striving, have been working, you've been trying all your life to get to a certain point. And you think, when I get there, it'll be okay. Here's the truth, it won't. Because worldly success is never enough. And you've been trying to serve both God, you really want to live for Him, but there's this one thing out there that God is calling you to give up that you haven't given up yet because you don't know who you would be without that one thing. God's saying, you can't serve two masters. And this morning what God's calling you to do is just to rest in His love. For some of you, that may mean the first time you come to Him and ask Him to be your Savior. For some of you, that just may mean that you say, I'm getting rid of the one thing, Lord. I'm coming completely to You and I want to live for You no matter what that means. For some of you, that may mean giving up some stuff and giving up some dreams. Let me tell you this. God never calls us to give up dreams without having bigger ones in place. Now, they may be different, completely different. They may not have a thing to do with money or success, but His dreams are bigger and better than yours. And this morning, in just a moment, we're going to have a time of invitation. And in that time, if God's calling you to do something, if you just feel a stirring in your heart to come, I'm going to ask you to come down here and talk to me. And just to see what God intends for us to do. To find our identity in Him. Let's pray together. Dear Jesus, Lord, we, we do come to you today, and we, Lord, I know that there are people in this room that have grown up in our society, and Lord, and it's just natural being a part of where we live and who we are, that it's all about what we do. 
And Lord, today, Lord, I know that there are some people here that have been striving, that have been working, that have been trying to get to certain places. And Lord, there just seems to be that they're, they're, they're grasping at air. And Lord, sometimes when they reach those places, those places where they feel like they, they got to where they wanted to be, Lord, there's a complete lack of fulfillment there. And when we realize that's because our only true identity comes from living in the knowledge of your life. Well, this morning during this invitation, I just pray that you will speak to hearts in this place. That you will give us wisdom about what we need to do. That you will allow us to understand how you want us to move. How you want us to live. How you want us to follow you. And this morning, Lord, my prayer is that we as a congregation and the individuals in this place will just have the courage to obey.